The following story has been brought to you by storiestoinspire.org. I know I walked into the room a few moments ago. People, and it's a good thing. We have to know how to profile. Is it safe? Is it not safe? Is it going to be? What's happening? You might come up with already a resume of who this person is and where he was born and what yeshiva he went to or didn't go to. And people are very often surprised and shocked. I share with uh, college students and with uh, from from birth people. Or just we just had a beautiful Shabbaton in a hotel and on Shavuos, and they're like, "What?" And I tell them, I, "I went to public school. I went to public school. I grew up in a little town called Eastchester, in the county of Westchester. You can already hear the confusion in the childhood. Go east, young man. Go west, young man." Uh, which is in West, West, you know, Westchester County, Scarsdale, New Rochelle, White Plains. Maybe some people heard of those those other names. The people in Eastchester did the lawns for the people in Scarsdale and, and New Rochelle. It was a middle-income uh, suburb composed mostly of uh, Irish and uh, Italians and a small smattering of Jews. And we knew who we were, but we just didn't know what it meant or what, what to do about it. And my parents moved there from the Bronx, from Queens, where I lived the first couple of years of my life. And uh, my, my grandfather opened up a diner. And so my father and my mother followed out the business, followed to the business in this place. There was a whatever conservative synagogue, whatever you want to call it. And that, that's where we attended. That's, that, that's uh, where we joined. And I have two older brothers, and they went for their bar mitzvah lessons, the whole thing. I didn't go to yeshiva. We had Hebrew school. Hebrew school, I'm sure nobody here knows what that means. That's Sunday and uh, either Mondays and Wednesdays or Tuesdays and Thursdays after school. After school. So right after football practice or basketball practice, I would go for my bar mitzvah lessons and they would make fun of me. Lamb was going for his bar mitzvah lessons. You know, they didn't, they, they, I, had to, I had to put up, you know, with that type of thing. But my, I saw my older brothers. I mean, the whole point in Hebrew school was to get kicked out of Hebrew school, really, on, 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 a, on, a, on a daily basis. We didn't, we didn't like it. We felt we were being punished. It was an add-on. It was not. It was not a main subject. And the teachers were not really. They didn't know anything about Yiddishkeit. We had uh, some teachers who knew how to teach, who were in public school, but they didn't know anything about Torah or mitzvahs or anything like that. And we had some Israelis who knew something about Israeli culture, but they didn't know how to teach, and we knew how to frustrate them. And after uh, like seven or eight years of Hebrew school, really all I remember is Sheket Shah. You know, that was really like, that was the full, full um, complete vocabulary that, that, that we had. And uh, of course, a good day in Hebrew school, you got kicked out of Hebrew school because there was a candy store across the street. And we hung in there because the goal was to get to the bar mitzvah. And after the bar mitzvah, then you're free. And I saw, I have two older brothers, and they had their bar mitzvahs, and people handed them envelopes with checks, and they opened up a small bank account, and it, it was made worthwhile. And so I stayed around for my bar mitzvah, and about seven or eight weeks before my bar mitzvah, they gave a, a record, which is like, a, maybe some people remember what a CD is. Some people, some, uh, I don't know if I'm, if I'm dating myself, but it was a 78 record. They put on a record player, and the cantor made a, a tape of the Haftorah, uh, with his muscular cantorial voice, and I memorized the whole thing. I didn't know. I read a little bit in, in, in Hebrew. I knew how to read the the words. I didn't know what I'm saying. It was it was actually about parts of a midbar a couple of weeks ago, um, and uh, I did my thing. I, I I it was a lot of pressure. I memorized it. I chanted my half Torah, but I had I remember thinking at the time, when do I get the other half of the Torah? I don't know what they're selling me. I don't know what it's about. And I, that was the last day, basically, of Jewish education. 
in high school, in public high school, I was uh, into sports and lots of other things. I was captain of the high school football team. I was captain of the high school basketball team and captain of the high school baseball team. Some people tell me I still have the pitching records. We're talking about many, many decades later. Um, and I was in I was in choir. I was actually the, the treasurer of the choir, although my kids don't believe I was ever in any choir. And my wife doesn't believe I was ever the treasurer of anything. Okay, so, But... Uh, I, I think I have it somewhere in a yearbook or something. I can I can demonstrate it. Welcome, welcome. How are we doing? All right, we're going to continue where we from where we started out, but I'm basically introducing myself, and I'll be introducing myself for the whole hour. Okay, hope you don't mind. Okay. Um, so, uh, so it, we were into sports again. I was I, I was into uh, football, basketball, baseball. The captain of all three teams. I don't think anybody had ever done that. And I was into drama, into, into, into all the other extracurricular activities as well. And I had very, li- very little connection to anything that had to do with, with religion. I don't even like to use that word, but Torah is not religion. It's Torah. Uh, but I did work in the evenings on top of all those extracurricular activities. I worked in a, in a re- local restaurant. And while I was working in the restaurant, um, it, the place was overrun and it was managed by a group of guys that were born again. I don't want to say what, C-H-R-I, you know what I'm talking about, born again. And they believed in things that, you know, whatever they believed in. And But they were very aggressive trying, they saw a Jewish kid. I'm going to show you some pictures along the way just to keep it a little bit interesting. So they, they saw a Jewish kid with a with, with a mop of uh, curly hair. Yeah, I had curly hair. I had hair back then. Yeah, I used to look... Uh, I used to complain about bad hair days, but now I look nostalgically back on hair days. Okay, this is what it looked like back then. You know, they called that a Jufro. So they would they would chase me around in the restaurant after we clean up and everything, and they would say, um, you know, they were always trying to pour oil on top of my head. And I say, guys, I'm not the salad. You know, leave me alone. What do you want from me? They were trying to anoint me or something. They figure if they got a Jew, that that was some kind of a a, a great prize. And then afterwards, we'd clean up the, rest, clean up the restaurant, we'd go outside, and it was a giant empty parking lot, and we'd play football. This one's going here, and we, you know, cutting and, and passing and doing all those different things. It was fun. But then we get into the huddle, and they would say, okay, now let's all just get on our knees and pray to the little baby. Just say, whoa, 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 time out, you know? If I remember anything else from Hebrew school besides Shekhar Pavakasha, it was that a Jew doesn't get down on his knee. Maybe it came from the story of Esther and Mordechai or something. Mordechai would not bow down. And so that idea, you know, I said, I, I don't get, we don't, we don't do that. And I said, you're not going to make a quick sale on me. They said, don't you see the stars and the moon and the sky and all these, uh, you know, fantabulous things and how organized it is. I said, what do I have to do with some guy who died 2,000 years ago? My oldest brother had the highest IQ ever recorded in the school district. And we had uh, basically a liberal arts-based medrash in our house where we grew up. And people would come over and discuss high-minded things. And so nobody was going to come and make a quick sale on me. I told them, I'll wait till I get to university. And there I'll read about the, what the great philosophers and historians and, and literary minds have to say. And I'll make up my mind about what the right thing, what the, what, what, what's worth pursuing in life. I said, but that's not going to happen over here in the parking lot in East Chester, New York, because a couple of zealots. In my mind, I'm convinced, you know, beg off, beg off. And uh, so I got a full scholarship to Colgate University. And I did my four years. And I, I remember walking away, I, pardon me, I don't like to say be negative about anything, but I was very disappointed. It, my, my idealism was souring by the time I left. People came in, it was their first time away from home, it was the best and the brightest, and I couldn't believe that this is how the best and the brightest behave. 
there was drinking, there was debauchery and indulging. The, the freshmen were just wild. The sophomores were more wild than them. The juniors were more wild than them. The seniors were more wild than, 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 than the sophomores. And the professors were more wild than anybody. You know, I, I never got invited to, over to anybody's house for anything legal or moral by a, by a professor. And I speak to many college students and I share the same thing. And they say, no, 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 Rabbi, it's different now. It's worse. You know, whatever you're going to describe, it's, it, it's, it's even worse. It's outrageous what, what was going on over there. And, and by the time we handed in our last philosophy and religion paper, um, they were already showing us how to shake hands and prepare to go out into the job world to interview. I had good friends who were going now to medical school and law school, taking out even extended loans that are going to spend the rest of their lives filling out. And, and I'm saying, like, where is everybody going? I was happy they knew what they wanted to do, but I didn't get a clarity out of this experience of four years of university. I wouldn't take these courses. They didn't want to graduate me for not, you know, for learning how to shake hands and how to interview and say, hi, my name is, and then the expert come across the street. You don't come in like that. No, you come in and how you say it. And then I said, I'm not interested. I didn't come here to find out that. I, I want to find out what I'm supposed to do with my life. And so I saw everybody going on what I called at that time in my life the fast track to nowhere. It's a large Skinnerian box. Where is everybody running to? And so I imagined if I would be successful at the American dream, like I was successful at everything else that I endeavored in. So then what would happen would be I, I would work for, for IBM for 50 years and then they would retire me you know, with a watch. And I'd be living in the northern suburbs of Westchester County someplace with a, uh, a station wagon and a sports car in the driveway, and I'd be sitting in the, uh, uh, with 1.7 kids and a dog, and I'd be sitting uh, in, in the backyard one day, uh, sunning myself, and it'd be a, a big puffy white cloud, and I'd be looking up at the sky, and a bird would fly by. I ran to the end of the movie. I just ran to the end of the movie. And I saw that the bird flies by, and the cloud is there for, for perspective, and then the bird disappears over the horizon, and I sit up in my chair, and I say, what was I supposed to do with my life anyway? <laughs> And then fade into oblivion, never having done or explored the thing. What am I here for? There was something aching inside and urging me. That's not it. That's it's not what they sold you. Is that that's not that's not what I'm looking for. I'm, I don't know what it is. I don't. I can't even describe it. And so I did a lot of different jobs. I'm not going to tell you all the jobs I did. I was on a moving truck. I was I, I, in, in Boston. I was taking classes at Harvard Extension School. I was, a, I was a bouncer in a bar. I could tell you, I could, st- we could stay all night long. I could, t- I could tell you stories uh, that would curl my own hair. It would grow my hair back and curl. Crazy stuff. I told my kids about them all the time. And it, it, so I was watching other people's lives. I was a mover. I was working. I was buying books and, and reading and writing. And, um, and, and so I was always hitchhiking everywhere I went. I hitchhiked across the country. I hitchhiked across Europe. I wasn't afraid of anything. I wasn't afraid of anybody. Later on, I realized it was a very risky and foolish way to behave because there are things to be afraid of out there. There are people who, who are, are not idealistic and they're not doing things for, um, for, for, for the most uh, uh, pure reasons. Right? So I had to you know, sort of fight my way out of certain situations, out of a moving car, all kinds of different things. But you know, I realized that as I'm looking into moving every day and looking at people's lives, I was just curious to see how other people are living and hitchhiking into all and exploring and, and, and going sideways around the world horizontally. I saw, I was thinking to myself, well, what if somebody would hitchhike past my life? What would they see? They'd only see me hitchhiking past their life because I, I don't have a place. You know, it's easy to make fun of things. It's easy to walk around like an anthropologist and to look at other people's lives. But where's my life? 
I know how to make jokes. I know how to lead people, but I didn't know where to lead people. I only know how to break things. I only know how to, to make fun of them, to make them ridiculous. But I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to build anything. I didn't know how to create anything. I didn't have a picture in my mind. And so I, I, I was fumbling like that. And suddenly an idea went off in my mind, and I don't know where it came from. I, 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 don't, I really don't know. It was a, just a thought that sort of bubbled up, that, that a clarion voice, maybe it was from a grandparent, maybe it was somebody else. And it said, make a difference in somebody else's life. Make a difference in somebody else's life. And exactly at that time that I was thinking that thought, that that's what I need to do. It's not about what, me making a job, having a living, doing something for somebody else. What? I don't know. I got a call from a black Puerto Rican friend from university who graduated a year, a year ahead of me, and he went back to the Bronx where he came from, and he, he, was a, um, he opened up a school for high school dropouts, Puerto Rican kids who now needed some job experience, they'd get jump-started in life, and needed their GED. And so he called me up, he says, you know, I like the way you are with people, we could use your energy, we could use you down here. So I said, okay, fine. So I came to the school, and that day I met like 80 students, they all marched through the office, and he was, he was, he was introducing them one after the other. And after hearing about their difficulties and their challenges and their woes, so I walked away that day, okay, I have a new job uh, challenge over here, but I felt like that guy with the bumper sticker in the back of his car that says, don't follow me, I'm lost myself. You know, like, like now I'm going to lead them where? I'm going to help them on the median pass to, to, to what? And the, 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 I don't even know what the goal is. It's like uh, I have to go save people who are drowning in the water, and I can't swim myself, so I'm, I'm not equipped to do this. And I was wondering, where can I anchor myself? To, if I want to help somebody, I have to help myself. I don't know how to help myself, so how can I help others? And it, 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 it sort of uh, motivated me to think about how can I anchor myself and what, and, and what can I do? <laughs> so, uh, you know, that, so one day, I, I, I used to go uh, once a week or so, we would invite a speaker to come to the, speak to our, uh, the students. And I would go around and I would ask different people where we had students who were working, maybe you'll come down and you'll speak to our students. And they said, yeah, sure. And they would always agree and come down. I went to this one fellow one time, tall, handsome, chisel-jawed black fellow. I remember what he looks like. I don't remember his name. And I asked him, maybe you'll come to the school and talk to the students. And he said, uh, no. I said, why not? They would love to hear you know, your life story, how you were able to pull yourself up and put yourself together. And now you're doing this for the community. He said, I want to speak to the students, but not, not in the school. I said, where then? He said, I used to be a curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and I would like to in, in, invite the students to come down and to spend a, a day and, um, and, and give them a tour and then speak to them. All right, he had a certain idea in mind, and so it wasn't my money. We hired two buses on a Tuesday morning, and we took uh, 80 students to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and this black fellow showed him, he showed him black art and Indian art and Spanish art in front of a black African mask. He said, Julio, come up here. And Julio stood. He said, doesn't it look like Julio? Oh, and everybody had a good laugh. And then it was a, a, a Spanish fresco. And he says, and doesn't it look like Juanita? Oh, and everybody had a good laugh. And then there was some kind of Indian totem. And he says, and doesn't this look like uh, 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 Jose? Oh, and everybody had a good laugh. And then after just introducing those three cultures and those three exhibits, he sat everybody down on the hallowed floors, the, the marble floors of the hallowed halls of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And he had like a little lectern in front of him, one of those little conductor lecterns. And he started to get into his, uh, his cadence, his uh, almost, how, how should we say, it was like a, uh, uh, a black Baptist ministerial cadence. 
And he said, the reason why I brought you over here and I showed you these things, he says, because I know that inside the inside the Puerto Rican personality are three different streams and three different cultures. And sometimes when a person looks in the mirror, the black man doesn't like the Indian or the Spaniard, and the Spaniard doesn't like the black man or the or the, or the Indian, and, 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 and the Indian doesn't like the, the Spaniard or the, or, or the black man, and just parts of us don't like other parts of us. And we're not getting along with ourselves. We're fractured. We're splintered inside. And if we're splintered inside, we don't have peace with ourselves, then how can we make peace with the world? And I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, that's very cool. That's very interesting. It sounds like Jungian psychology. I'm always thinking, like, where on the bookshelf does this type of thinking, you know, fit? And I'm sort of, like, digging what he's saying. The students are there watching. And I'm sort of, like, you know, slightly disassociated off to the side, wearing my uh, jeans and a, and, and a T-shirt and karate slippers, although I don't know anything about karate. But I had seen, I was working in a rough neighborhood, and I knew a few moves from watching, you know, enough uh, kung fu TV shows. You know, I knew how to get into a stance and practice saying it to the mirror in case anybody ever challenged me on it. Um, I have to warn you that my hands are registered weapons, you know. These are blenders. They look like hands right now, but, you know, you don't want to, when these things start to spin, watch out. You know, I, I, never, had, no, I never had to do it, but I, 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 I wanted to at least be able to bluff. And so I'm standing off to the side and I'm watching the students there with my big Jufro. And he's telling them, in order to know where you're going to in life, he says, you got to know where you're coming from. In order to know where you're going to in life, you got to know where you're coming from. And I'm over there, yeah, yeah, this is good. This, he's saying good stuff. And my life was about to change. I didn't realize. And he says, Bob over here, pointing to me, and I'm off on the side. He says, Bob over here, he knows where he comes from. He's a son of Abraham. Right? And suddenly he throws me this bounce pass over here out of nowhere. And my first reaction is anti-Semitism. Let's go. You know, like, like, like as if somebody called me Jew boy. And I realized he didn't say anything pejorative. So th- that would be inappropriate to, to answer angrily or aggressively. And then I'm thinking, you know, I have a 80 students. I have 80 people. I have 159 eyes staring at me. You know, I better come up with the right answer instantly. Yeah. Okay, maybe we'll, maybe we'll save a question. So do me a favor, hold on to it, and, if, and, if, and we'll, maybe we'll save, we'll save it to the end. And so my mind is racing because I felt like this deer, uh, in, uh, the deer in the highway with the headlights bearing down, Bambi. I have all these students looking at me, and he asked me a question. My next thing is, was, I was thinking, well, this is a, a break between religion and this is government money and government religion. You know, I broke that. He asked me, son of Abraham, it wasn't my bar mitzvah portion, by the way, and it wasn't my brother's. So I have almost no memory of what he's t- asking about. And then, and then I started flashing back quickly. My mind is racing, and in a nanosecond, I'm sitting in Hebrew school in fourth grade. And one afternoon, and we remember we made little hollow covers. We took a cloth and we, we we took off the edges, made little fringes, and then we opened up this heavy cloth book. I tried to find it online now. It's called Heroes of Jewish History, and somewhere in the beginning of the third chapter, in the uh, on the title page of that third chapter, the the top. Two-thirds of the page was a picture, uh, a pencil sketch of a man and a woman wearing white robes like Lawrence of Arabia and schlepping a couple of camels behind them. And the bottom third of the page talk about a man named Abram and a woman named Sorai coming from a place called Ur, right? Ur Kazdim, whatever it is. And I think I remember that, that, that event because it was probably me who started the contagion of saying, er, 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 and I got sent out at that moment over there. So it was anchored to something, you know, positive. And, uh, and, and so 
in that second over there, he says, Bob over here, he knows where he comes from. He's a son of Abraham, you know, and then he, everybody's looking at me and you know, nobody picked up on all the thoughts that were, that were, that were rising in my mind and being deleted. And I said, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And I agreed to it publicly. Now that I agreed to it publicly, I came rushing home to my parents' house where my brothers and I had thousands of books before we went to university, thousands of books since we went to university, and I started scanning the top shelf over there, and there were three black Misoretic texts, three Bibles that were given to us by the Sisterhood of the Genesis Hebrew Center on the occasion of our bar mitzvahs. And since I was the youngest one, I could tell from the only books that were never touched. And I could tell from the gentle geologic slope of dust on top which one was mine. I pulled it out. I opened up the flap. There it is, Robert Lamb on the occasion of, you know, and I started reading, flipping, flipping, flipping through the pages. And suddenly I find a story about a man named Abraham. And he's got a wife that's barren and has no children. Probably voted at the age of 75, probably voted in his high school class, least likely to make it into the 20th or the 21st century. And I said, whoa, whoa, that's my great, 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 great grandfather. And I start flipping pages ahead, and suddenly I start discovering stories about him doing extreme acts of kindliness. And I'm reminding myself of what I heard about my own great-grandfather who built a shul in Newburyport, Massachusetts, and used to host people. And he always had his hand in his pocket to give out a loan and to do generous things. And I'm thinking, wow, it, it sounds like it's, it's, it's family. This sounds like family, our family values. This is unbelievable. I wish I knew more. I'm just getting like a little pencil sketch of who this person is. Now, I walked around the streets of Manhattan after that. I went back to the library. By the way, we didn't have Google back then. I had to, and I said, I wonder if there's anybody else on the planet. And I started researching Indian culture and Chinese culture. Is there anybody else who, who knows that they can trace themselves back to any credible individual that they, that they say that I know who my great, 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 couple of great grandfather is going back 3,700 years. Now, I knew my great-grandfather. He was 86 when he passed away. That summer, I was 15. That's a 70-year spread, so it's really not that long. It's, you take 55 of those connectors, and then we're standing back by, by, by Avram Avinu 3,700 years ago. So I'm walking around obsessing on this idea, driving and, 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 and going to the subway to Manhattan, looking around, going to the Bronx and back to Manhattan, and, and I look out from behind my book. And now in New York, you don't want people seeing you, seeing them, seeing you, seeing them, seeing you. So when the subway was dark, I would peek into the, peer into the, into the reflection in the mirror. And I'm wondering if this Indian, what Chinese person, he knows he has a, an old culture, but can he trace him back to, himself back to King Ming? I, I don't think so. But I know who my great, 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 great grandfather was going back 3,700 years. And I'm the only one that seems to be aware of it or know about it or care about it. And my heart was swelling with pride. and I didn't know what to do about it. And then at one moment, it just occurred to me, fool what I am. Listen how I'm, I'm looking at it. I'm walking around saying these words to myself. I, I know who my great, great, great going back 3,700 years. And I realized it's like it's all about me. And I'm looking down this long highway of history that far back. And at some point, I asked myself a question, and this really turned everything around. Because one anonymous philosopher once said, there's nothing more irrelevant than the answer to a question that was never asked. And I asked myself this question, and answers have been flooding to me. Once you press the go button, the search button, then suddenly answers start, start flowing in your direction. And, and this is the, the first question, and these are the first answers that I think I came up, the first credible answers. I said, what type of man was Abraham, what type of woman was Sarah, that they should make their impression, they should make themselves, their lives felt 3,700 years into the future. How about that? I can say, you know, I know they're my great, but it's not about, how did, what, how did they do that? 
What's the trick over here? But the but but the real aching question that was inside, that was burning inside of me, my personal question was, what type of parent or grandparent would I have to be that my kids or my grandkids ever cared who I was or what I lived for? And the dirty little secret was, who wanted to have children? Who needs children? It was, a, it was a, it, we, everything I knew, we knew from the news and we knew from, 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 from things that were going on in the world. There was a, there was a cold war. There's a sort of, sort of Damocles which is hanging over our head. There, 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 there's bombs, bomb shelters we used to go into as, as little kids. And, 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 and it's a dirty kitchen. It's polluted. Who, you know, why would I bring somebody into this world? Why would I bring him into somebody else's dirty kitchen? It didn't seem like a favor. That's the way I was thinking at the time. My mind was polluted. And, and what songs would I teach them anyway? Right? When I take my kids on a trip someplace, the first thing they want to know in the first five minutes is how long does it take and where are we going? Right? You've got to answer those questions. If I don't know where I'm taking somebody, so I'm already, you know, to bring them into a world and bring them on this journey and not know where you're taking them, what you're taking them for is, is not nice. It doesn't seem like a right thing to do. Just because you want to, you have this instinct, that didn't seem to be the right thing to do in principle. Not to, not to be the right thing at all. And so I didn't know how to answer this question about Abraham and Sarah. I didn't have a Rebbe. I didn't have a Torah. I didn't have anything. But the Mishnah of Perkyavos, I didn't know the Mishnah of Perkyavos, but I, later on I, I bump into it in Kav Yashar, he says. He says, uh, Let your pen be your friend. Like it says in the Mishnah of Perkyavos. Kene means a pen. Let your pen be your friend. So I still, these are my good friends over here. Here, meet them. One is a yellow highlighter. The other one is a regular pen. And I also have a, a notebook that I carry with me everywhere I go. Let your pen be your friend. And back then I started writing on a tall, legal, yellow pen. And when I got down to the bottom of this page, I got down to the bottom of the pad, I was amazed. I was just I asked myself a question on the top of the page. What what do you know? After all these years of reading and going to university and studying and writing and handing in papers, what do you know? And I would write for myself and I would get down to the bottom of the page and I was surprised, amazed, that by the time I got down to the bottom of the page, there was always one word that was pulsing and, and, and hammering on the bottom of the page, and that word was the word one. I don't even know where it came from. One, 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 one. What's that about? And I realized later on, thinking about it, that as a good Jewish boy going to sleep every night, I would put my hands over my eyes and I would say, I would say, math, English, social studies, science, because those are the subjects that, you know, I'm going to be responsible to hand in something or take a test about or or read, have read something about before I go to class the next day. Because those are the subjects. That's how life is divided up into those neat subjects. And then I got to university and I saw that it was the interdisciplinary we because now it's the history of the math of science and the art of the history of the uh, of the uh, of the archaeology of, uh, of of the technology of British literature. Whoa, you know, and I saw one French philosopher. He said, all science is one. All science is one. And I highlighted that. But everything was highlighted in the book. I don't think I'll ever be able to find it again. All science is one. And somehow I realized that pulsing inside of me was a sense that, there's a, that, 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 that reality, there's one reality. There's one, there's one crystallized, viscous uh, piece of reality over here. And there's a oneness. It's, it's, it's a palpable oneness that, 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 that we never learned about. We only learned about how the world is splintered and divided. And so... I would cut and paste. Cut and paste meant something different by, back there, back then, by the way. I would write, and I still have these writings, and I would circle something and copy it, the, the best of, something that, that, that spoke to me. I was just discovering, I was just letting whatever was inside be cleaned out of the basement of my mind. But I found some pearls down there. And I'll share with you 
that I think I found that discovered the answer to the question about how Abraham and Sarah were able to make their impact, impact in going so far into the future. Now imagine you're out in the country someplace and you throw a rock into a lake and the rock hits the water and it sends out these concentric circles, these beautiful circles. And then the rock settles down to the bottom of the pond and the water goes back unimpressed. It goes back to being like a cool piece of glass, like a, like a, like a mirror. And so I wrote to myself the following words. My kids know it by heart already. And I'll say it twice just in case we don't get it the first time. And if everybody wants to write it down later on, I'll give you a chance to look at it. Pebbles and ponds are our ponderings. But boulders and oceans were our father's notions whose waves still rock the sea, whose waves still rock the sea. Again, pebbles and ponds are our ponderings. But boulders and oceans were our father's notions, whose waves still rock the sea, whose waves still rock the sea. And I imagine that a boulder hits the earth 3,700 years ago, hits the, 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 the ocean, and it, it settles down to the bottom, and we don't know what the density, the velocity, or the size of that rock is. But all I can say is that there's an ebb and there's a flow and there's a tide that came from the impact of that boulder. And I realize it had little and less to do with Abraham's political connections or his military might and more to do with a certain idea. What was that idea that he had? He had an idea. And if I can find out what that idea is and I can get close to it, then maybe I can approximate such a life. And so it opened me up to the possibility that no matter where I was on a Friday night, on Saturday morning, I would come to a place in midtown Manhattan called the Garment Center Synagogue, which had a transient population of people. They had about 13 or 14 elderly people on a crowded Saturday morning in a big shul. And they were all over the age of 86. And they were all these little skinny talisim over their shoulders. They were mumbling and turning pages. I never knew what page we were on. They didn't announce any pages. And I'm sitting in the back with the old Birnbaum sitter. You'll ask your grandparents about the Birnbaum sitter and the Hertz Chumash with all the archaic Hebrew and in English. And I'm sitting reading this. I never knew which page we're on, what we're doing. And But I'm reading the words in English and it's tickling my mind, even with the archaic St. King James translations that are going on over there. And it's doing something to me. And I'm starting to feel like, wow, I'm looking at the Hebrew side where those black squiggly lines are and saying, I wish I could dig in over there and find out what's inside those words and then maybe something I'll know what it's really saying. And that started to call me. And the uh, truth is, I had no real function in the shul. I would stand in the back by myself and sort of read and turn pages. And I came there with my jeans and my sneakers and, uh, you know, out of respect. And they would uh, always call me up for some mystical reason. They would always call me up. This was the only part that I could really, I was a role player in the, in the shul. They would always come up for some mystical reason. They called me up for Hagba, you know, and I would lift up the Torah and uh, I would hold it up as high as I could. And then I would come down and, and all the old men would gather around the bima and they would all like, you know, pat me on the shoulder and feel, oh, he's a young, strong, Louis, he's a young, uh, Louis, a young one, a young one, you know. Oh, and they would look at me like, oh, you're the future. Like they looked at me the way my grandmother looked at me. Oh, you're the future, you know. I'm the only young one, I'm the only young one there. And I'm thinking, if, if I'm the future, we're in big trouble. Because I can't read. I don't know what page we're on. I don't know what's going on. And so I told the rabbi, I said, you know something? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hitchhike. I had once been to, uh, to Israel when I was a uh, college student my, fir- my freshman year. And I, uh, I, I worked on a kibbutz. 
And I one time went to Yerushalayim and I was with a bunch of elderly, uh, I, I went into, with a friend of mine, a Gentile friend of mine, we hitched our, ba- we hit our backpacks and we went into, it must have been a Hasidic tish, we were going around in a big circle, uh, like a revolving door, we won rain, I don't know what they were doing, they were going around in a big circle, we went around and then we went out of the circle. And I said, those men with the long white beards, they, they probably know what's inside these squiggly lines, I'm going to go find some of them, they're going to teach me and I'm going to submit myself and I'm ready to go. And, and the rabbi felt it's a you know harbei kategorim omdim ben kandigichon. You get lost between here and and Europe, in, here in Israel. You can't hitchhike. It's at the Bering Strait. No, 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 no. It's not going to happen. It's just a short bridge. I I, a, I had no plan. I had a plan that was a no plan. He said he said no 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 no. He said I'll make a few phone calls. Next thing I know, he has set me up. In a couple of weeks, there was a pagisha, a, a gathering of young people, searchers, who were coming to Crown Heights for, for Shabbos. I don't know what I'm opening myself up to, but okay. I got the address. I got in my car. I was on the Bronx, uh, 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 Cross Bronx Expressway in a Friday afternoon. My car got hit. It spun around twice. My heart was pounding. I caught up with the guy who hit the car, and I wagged my finger like that, and he sped off, and my heart was pounding. Finally, I get to the address that they had uh, designated, and this fellow comes out to meet me, you know, with a beard. He looks like one of these guys I saw in Yerushalayim. He greets me right away. He starts taking my blood pressure. You know, I said, no, I feel fine. How did he know that I was, you know, just had a very uh, uh, traumatic uh, experience? You know, he say, and then, but he puts this thing on my head. And now he opens up the book and I say, say, say after me, you know, Shema. Say after me. No, no. Okay. And I'm, say, I'm saying Shema with him. Okay, fine. Then he set up by a beautiful family. I sat around the table with this beautiful family on a Friday night. Wow. I don't remember anything that anybody said, but it was, it was, it was like there's a candelabra in the middle and, and they were all sitting, the inky dicky, Louie Dewey, they were all sitting around the table. It was beautiful. And, and they, and they were singing at times and they were discussing. And I said, wow, they weren't fighting over the, the, the clicker. Who's going to turn, what show we're watching and the game's over now. It's my turn. You know, it was nice. All family sitting together. I don't remember such a thing in, in my life. And, um, and then we went on Friday night, we walked to, uh, to, to someone's house, and there I met 30, 30 other people who were like me, who they were like mountain climbers that came to the top of a mountain. I said, wow. They were, they, 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 they'd all, we talked amongst each other, they'd all come through their arduous climb, looking at things intuitively and, 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 and objectively, trying to figure out, uh, scientifically trying to understand that we all came to a similar conclusion, the same point at the same time, and it affirmed what I was thinking, what I was going through. And we meet other people and say, wow, they, they're living on top of the city that's on top of a mountain. I said, and, and I felt as if they're saying to me, like, what's it like down there? I said, no, no, this is where it's at. This is where it's at, up here. And this rabbi spoke to us, Manus Friedman, happened to be, he was uh, the brother of Avram Fried. And he spoke to us that Friday night and he said, I took a nice, you know, com- uh, comfy chair in the middle of the living room. I remember, okay. He said, you Western thinkers, you intellects. I remember sitting there thinking, oh, you got the right audience. He knows his audience. You know? He says, you think you're in, you think God is in your little world. He says, no. He says, you live in God's world. And it's just how, maybe it was the way he said it. Maybe it was the mood of Shabbos. Maybe it was the car that, 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 that got spun around. Or maybe it was the fact that I, I, I had my blood pressure taken that day. You know? But whatever it was, I, I, suddenly it, those words sunk in. And my whole life turned upside down because my whole orientation for my, the Western intellectual posture was, God, prove yourself to me or I won't believe in you. Do an Irish jig, split a sea for me and show me that you exist. You know, like, like a kid who says to his parents, you know, if you don't do carpool for me, I won't inherit your money. OK, do me a favor, would you please? And I realized that time is not on my side, not like the song says. Sorry, Mick. 
but but I better prove to God that I exist and, and and that my life has more significance than that cockroach in the apartment in Manhattan or that deer that got hit on the side of the road that that, that just got knocked out into the woods. I have to prove that there's something significant, something important about my life. So I walked away from that Shabbos with a yarmulke on top of my curly crop of hair. Here's another picture of me playing baseball in, in, in college, in, in, in high school. And here's a picture of me playing baseball, you know, in college. I always had a number, number 18. That was always my number. They didn't have 18. I'm sorry. I took, I took the wrong one. Here it is. 18. There it was. So now I'm walking around with a yarmulke on top of my head because I'm saying to myself, hey, I live in God's world. And really, that's all I really know about. And so I came home from, a, it was around this time of the year, Memorial Day barbecue. And uh, it was at my mother's house. All her friends were there from from Long Island, Roz and Max. All their friends were there. They were all named Roz and Max. And they had Mercedes were lining up the, whole, the street. I could picture it. And they were eating burgers and they were talking. And when I show up at a yarmulke, they go, oh, what's today? Uh, Jewish holiday? Who, who are you? The Pope? Oh, you know, you can imagine like 15 Jackie Mason prototypes. You're sitting there talking like uh, and I told them, no. I told them, I said, I live in God's world. They go, oh, let's get out of here, Roz. Let's get to the Mercedes and drive home. We'll go back to Long Island. And my mother said, I don't think they're prepared to hear this type of stuff. They're not into it so much. So I got shepherded to a room. I got a couple of hamburgers. And I sat by myself, minding my own business. I'm writing. I got to picked up a couple of books. And I don't know what to say. So uh, come Monday morning, I got to get back to work. Monday morning, I'm walking around now with the armor cut on my head. The, I, I, the game just changed in the middle of the... I have a job working in the Bronx with these high school kids and I have a yarmulke on my head, I have a conflict. And I poskined for myself, because I didn't have a rub, that when I'll get to work, I'll put it in the glove compartment, I'll put it in my pocket, and I'll, because I didn't start the job like this, and I don't want it to interfere, so, and later on, I'll put it back on. I didn't think that would be hypocritical at all. And I, and I don't think it is. But um, that morning, I was so busy carried away with the reading and the writing and the highlighting and all the stuff that I'm doing, that suddenly I realized I'm late and I told the students never to be late. Oh, and I'm hustling and the later the traffic gets, the, the, the more the traffic jams, the more it jams. And finally I get there and I'm going around the block. I can't find a parking place. Finally I find a parking place. I come rushing in and 80 students are milling around. I said, everybody in your seats, I told you never to be late. And here I'm late. I'm so sorry. And they jump into their seats. I've got to take it off. And some little girl and somebody's in the back said, what's that thing for, man? Protection? <laughs> and they all broke up into spontaneous, uproarious laughter. And I said, oh, no, it's on top of my head still. And, I, and at my, I was thinking maybe I'll just take it off and just whisk it into my pocket. But I felt that would be disingenuous. That would be hypocritical in a certain way. And so I composed myself. I wasn't going to have it laughed off my head. And so I composed myself and I put myself back in the same frame of mind I was. On Shabbos, when the rabbi was speaking, and I told him with perfect equanimity, I said, this is to remind me, I told him, that I live in God's world. And there was a pregnant pause there. I mean, we were expecting quadruplets in that room over there, and it was like, whoa, you know. They had never heard a statement like that. They didn't know what to do with it, you know. Most people don't. I'm not sure I know what to do with it. But I remember that it was quiet, and there was a tenseness in the room, and a little... Olive-skinned girl, uh, uh, Macy, who was sitting in the third row, a little piquet, she had a sharp little eye and a sharp little mind, and she said, word, man, word. Okay, back then that was like, you know, uh, like, a, like a good fist pump, you know. She gave the approval, and it, they, they sensed that I was sincere, and I meant what I said, and I said what I meant, and they respected that. And I walked down the aisles, and I slapped five with everybody, and I kept it on my head. 
and I felt now like one of these Picasso pictures. You know, ever see Picasso pictures? Like uh, uh, I used to feel like cubist art. I'm trying to be everything to everybody, but nothing to myself. And now suddenly, with the armor on my head, I said, "I'm a son of Abraham." And uh, and Hashem is and, and there's one. The world is one. There's something one about the world, and uh, and, and I live in God's world. And, and, and suddenly, all those fissures started to heal. I sort of felt a certain peace and and, calm, and power. I don't know. I, I felt I felt I felt like indestructible. I felt a certain confidence that I never had. That, that was I had confidence, but I never had that type of confidence. I felt like, you know, the the world is is, is ordered beyond what people are ordering. And so now I'm walking around with a yarmulke on my head, and I don't even know what I'm representing. I went out on a Friday night with some close friends of mine from the basketball team. These guys, six foot seven, six foot eight. I was the small man on the on, on the big man's club. And we're sitting in a Chinese restaurant in Manhattan on a Friday night, and and we're about to order. And and I don't know where this guy came from, central casting, whatever. He looks out behind from behind his menu, and he looks at me with a yarmulke on my head, and he says, "What are you doing here?" He says, this is not a kosher restaurant. And it's Shabbos, he says to me like that. I tell my friends, we got to get out of here. They said, but we didn't order. I said, it's good we didn't order. Let's go. And so we got up and we left. I realized later on, I forgot to ask the guy, what, what are you doing here? You know? I said, maybe, maybe he's the Mashkiach. Okay, that's a, it occurred to me later on. Okay, but, but so we got out of there and I'm walking around. I don't know what I'm representing. So there's an old notion, an Eastern notion, but I can tell you what the Torah sources of it is, but I won't uh, belabor it right now, that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. When Klai Yisrael was ready, V'yichan Sham Yisrael Negadahar, when we were sitting over there, Ke'ish Echad Balev Echad, HaKadosh Baruch Hu B'chvodu B'asmo, broke a 2448-year silence. When the teacher is, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself appeared to the world and spoke to humanity, spoke to the Jewish people when we were ready. But not before then. And so I'm in a certain ready state of mind. And now relatives from the far east, from the, from the, east, from the western part of the United States, from, uh, what's the name of the place? Up in the north, up there, where, uh, uh, where? Okay. I forget the name of the place. But they had children that they said, cousins who went there, and they settled, they settled at Seattle. And they settled, they sent their children to, to Yeshiva in Denver. And from there, I have a cousin, Eliyahu, who was now learning in Lakewood. I didn't know about him. And he had a sister, Masha, who was about to get engaged. And she was living in Borough Park. And she was looking relatives in the east that she could invite. And maybe you'd be Makarov a little bit. So she looked through the note, phone book and she got in touch with my aunt. And she, after a couple of failed attempts, and she got in touch with my aunt. And she, she, she introduced herself. Oh, you're Mel's, you know, daughter. Oh, yeah, from, you were in Boston and then you moved out to Seattle. Yes. And, and she, she discerned that she's a religious girl. And she gave me, uh, my aunt came to me and said, uh, I think she's a religious girl. She's a nut. You're a nut. Because I'm walking around with a yard on my head. And she gave me the number. And I called up. As so I called up and she, and, and, and she says, yeah, yeah, come for Shabbos. I came to Borough Park now for Shabbos. And in that Shabbos, she got engaged. And I met her brother, her brother Eliyahu. And who was learning in Lakewood. My cousin Eliyahu was walking around me the whole Shabbos. He was walking behind me. He was in, in, in yeshiva in Lakewood. He was called the Balshtika. He was praised as being the one. You couldn't get him into any side conversation. He has one finger on the Gemara, one finger on the Rashi. You want to talk about sports. You want to talk about politics. He's not the one that you want out of your Jerusalem if that's what you're planning on doing. You know, he's spoke, even to this day, he's focused like a laser beam. And he doesn't say extra words. So he's walking around behind me and he's saying stuff like, uh, Why don't you go to Ursa Why don't you go to Ursa Why don't you go to... He's talking out of the side of his mouth and whispering 
post-hypnotic suggestions about going to Orsomech, Orsomech, right? Why don't you go to Orsomech? Now, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know if anybody's trying to say something to me. I keep on turning around. Like, are you talking to me? And he would look like, pretend like nothing happened. I said, if you have something to say, say it, you know, say it to me. I'm here. I can, you know, I can receive words. English is my, but, or what? I was in what he's talking about. What's the, what's the other option? Or Sameach, you know? What was before then? That, yeah, now you're offering the, the second option. What was the first option before or of the Or Sameach? I was, you know, I didn't know what he's talking about. Then he had a, his, his sister had an Ufruf in Muncie, and I found out where Muncie is, where they just opened up a fledgling branch of Or Sameach in, in, in Muncie. And, uh, great. Uh, so I came to, I found out what, what that was about. I had now Shabbos in Muncie, and I knew how to get to Muncie across the, across the Tappan Zee Bridge. And uh, he was walking, walking around behind me. Why don't you go to Orsameach? Not saying anything directly, but sort of like dropping these, uh, these little thought bombs into my brain. Okay, somebody's talking to me, somebody's trying to tell me something. And then, so, but I have a job. Now, it turns out that the fellow who's supposed to be managing the, the, the payments for our school, and we were about to get refinanced based upon merit, so this fellow was supposed to be paying the, off the vendors. Instead of paying others, he was paying from his right pocket to his left pocket. Suddenly the feds came around. He had to run Venezuela, and the school closed down suddenly. And I find myself sitting at home in my parents' house in Westchester County trying to figure out what's the next best thing I should do. And I'm sitting over there, and I got myself my own little pair of black boxes. I'm taking my own blood pressure. I don't know what page I'm on. I'm reading. I'm flipping. I'm doing Perkyavos. I'm doing a Yom Kippur service. Everything. You name it. And um, and, and one one late morning, and, and, and suddenly I hear a giant knock on the door. I said, oh, what's going on? I go to the door, and I said, uh, we'd like to talk to you. I said, we? Was it the feds? You know, I said, nothing. I wasn't in the financial. I was not in the financial part. I was in the educational side of things. I'm thinking to myself. And they said, no, wh- what do you want to talk about? I said, look, we want to talk to you about reading the Bible. <laughs> I know who these guys are. I know who they are personally, but I know what they're about. And I said, I'm sort of reading the Bible now. That's not how you get rid of them, by the way. I'm sort of reading the Bible right now. And they said, oh, let's talk, let's talk. They were so anxious to talk. And I said, uh, I don't know if now's a good time. And I opened the doors. I'm standing behind the doors. Maybe I'm wearing a robe or something like that. And I said, I don't know if now's a good time. And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I throw open the door. And I see this, you know, this, this, this clean-cut looking white kid and a black kid with a skinny black tie and, and, and the Bible's tucked under their arms and that big smile like they just fell off a, a Kashi uh, cereal box. You know, that, the, you know that, that perfect smile. Right, the orthodontist is, you know, really, you know, got it right that time, and it, and and they were like posing for that picture, and the minute they see me with the black boxes on top of my head, the black boxes on my head, they go, their smiles collapsed, they gave you a du- classic double take to each other, nobody said anything, and they ran like the like the lion and the Wizard of Oz, you know, as if they as, as if their tail was on fire, and I went out of the front stoop and I watched them go up and around the corner of Fairway Drive until they disappeared out of sight, and when they disappeared, I said to myself. Why don't I go to Orsameach? <laughs> and I made a few phone calls. I found out where it was. And they tell me it's up in, 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 in Rockland County. I said, okay. I put on a three-piece suit, something like this. This is how it looked. This is one of the only pictures of me without a beard after college. Even during college, I had a beard. And my wife said, you used to be cute then. I said, what do you mean then? What's that about? I said, what's that qualifier over there? So in any case, I came with a, with a three-piece suit like I'm going on a major job interview. And I come to this place and I see you got these guys over there and they're learning the squiggly lines. They're wearing jeans and sneakers and they're learning with proficiency and excitement the squiggly, the squiggly, the black squiggly lines. I said, that's what I'm looking for. 
And I talked to Rosh Hashiva, and he said, great, great. It was on a Wednesday. He said, uh, come back for Shabbos, come back for Shabbos. I said, great. So I went home. I came back on Friday with my jeans and sneakers. Here's, a, here's a, me wearing my overalls. I think that's what I was wearing on, on that Shabbos, right? And everybody was getting into their suits, getting ready for Shabbos. And I walked around a little hokey, and I felt a little bit you know, out of place, but not because of what anybody said. They made me feel perfectly at home. And I came back the next week with my jeans and my sneakers for the weekday and my suit for Shabbos, and I ended up staying in yeshiva for the next four years. I have friends who I just actually made a visit to a friend of mine in Boston who later followed along with me. And I have a few other friends. They came up for Shabbos. They got a flavor of what it's all about. And they decided they also want to make such a change like that. That turned off anybody else from ever wanting to come again for Shabbos after that. Once they saw what could happen, Shabbos is dangerous that way. And so my friend would tell me, he says, what they used to say about me when I was gone for those many years. They said, whatever happened to Lamb, Bobby Lamb? What happened to Bobby Lamb? Bobby Lamb? Oh. <laughs> he... He went off the deep. They do the wily e. coyote into the ravine. You know, they would extend the tequila gadola. And when they get down that little puff at the end, everybody would break up into laughter. And they said, Lamb went off the deep end. He's in the woods. He's learning. He's learning with the boys in the woods. They had all kinds of things. I had relatives who were following me around for years telling me, and he said, you could have been a senator. You could have become something. You could have become something big. You could have made something out of yourself. You could have been a senator. That's what I hear all the time. You could have, you, what a shame, what a, what a tragedy, what a shanda. You could have become a senator. Yeah, okay, great. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. It's a nice compliment, but it was a, it was a, it was a backhanded compliment. And it didn't get the, the blessing from those people. It wasn't easy. There were a few people, my mother, my grandmother. And, uh, and, and it wasn't easy. People think, oh, you go to Shiva, suddenly the lights go on, everything's easy. They're learning Aramaic and, 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 and getting up early every morning and taking your own blood pressure every morning. And, and, and the Talmud is not easy. Not easy. You can learn a mission. It's, 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 it's maybe understandable. Once you start getting into the Gemara, you feel, I'm, I'm, I'm a fool. And the rabbi's kids know 10,000 times more than you, you think you'll ever know. I never knew what page we were on. I'm sitting on Shabbos and, and, and you got a nice, beautiful family sitting over there and they're singing Yom Zemechubanahatnhasinahuhulishalayivu. You know, and this kid looks at me and says, you don't know the words to that song, do you? You know, I sh- quiet kid. Don't say anything and I'll take you on a Cholomoy Shavuos trip. You know, I have kids coming to me later on. They're asking me, uh, they want to go on that Cholomoy Shavuos trip that I said I owe them. You know, uh, a genius, you know. I think maybe I might have learned one or two things that they, that they hadn't figured out yet. Okay, good. But it was, it, it, it was humiliating. But I'll tell you one thing. When I would come to those, to the, to those homes on, on a Friday night, go to my Rebbe's house, and had a few rebellion like that, we were sitting around the table with 13 and 14 children sitting around. And you'd see them all congregated there, singing together harmoniously. And I'm saying everybody was perfect at every moment. I would sit there, I would have a good time, I'd have a wonderful time. I'd walk home on Friday night back to the dorm and I would punch the pillow and I'd cry myself to sleep saying, I want that. I don't care if I have to learn Aramaic or eat glass or both. And Aramaic tasted like glass at that time. But I'm going to do it because I want that. That's Harsinai. When I would see a family, that's, that, that cannot be replicated. You can't find it anywhere else on the planet. I've been all over the world. That's it. And so I, I stayed with it. Some people dropped out. Some people didn't, c- couldn't take it. But I said, I, you know, if I'm going to do something, I don't want that American dream. I want this. And I stayed there. I got very little encouragement from, from, from certain angles. I remember one time one relative 
close relative got married. It was the first time the family was getting together in many, many years. And I show up for the first time now with, uh, with, with a short black beard and, and a yarmulke now planting firmly on top of my head and tits is peeking out from underneath my jacket. And it was like, you know, here are my relatives that I, that I haven't seen for so many years and they're all, it's cocktail hour. I remember it was uh, July 4th. It was like 98 degrees and everybody's sitting in this, in, in these different various rooms and corners of the, of the reception areas. And when I would enter the room and I'd say, oh, you know, suddenly they would all kind of like go, oh, excuse me, you know, and they would break up and say, let's go, you know, as if I had some kind of <laughs> communicable disease or something like that. And I wasn't wearing my mask. And I was getting that type of reaction. And it didn't happen once. And it didn't happen twice. And it wasn't, and, and, and it was, it, they weren't even being subtle about it. it. They were being obvious and overt about it. And I said, okay, that's their problem. But I remember one little old aunt of mine, my Aunt Fanny. She was from my, my, my grandfather's older sister. From the group that came over from Europe, there was another crop that was, grown, that was born in the United States. And my Aunt Fanny, she says, darling... I wanted to tell you something. She was a furrier in the Bronx. So here it was 98 degrees. She had a little Zsa Zsa Gabor with a, with, a, with, a, with a fur coat on top of her shoulders. And I don't think Aunt Fanny was taller than the back of this chair over here. But she had a big bee, beehive hairdo. You know what a big bee like? Like Zsa Zsa Gabor. That she looked like Shaq O'Neal. She was big, tall like this. You know, I don't know if she could hit hang on the rim. But w- with that hairdo, she was like, you know, yeah, there's Aunt Fanny. She goes, darling, I want to talk to you. I said, what is it, Aunt Fanny? What is it? And I leaned over very far, you know, to hear her little you know, European raspy voice. And she goes, I want to tell you something. If somebody wants to talk to me, I'll talk to anybody now who wants to talk to me. And I remember, and as I got closer, she said to me with a little crackly voice, she said, she said, everybody thinks you're crazy. I said, thank you, Aunt Fanny. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Sharing is caring. I really appreciate that, you know. Wow. She goes, but I want to tell you something else. I said, what is it? And I made the mistake, strategic mistake of bending over even, even, even closer to hear now what she has to say. And after her telling me, everybody thinks you're crazy, suddenly she says, she goes, but you're doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing. And I can hear, you're doing the right thing. She was all out of breath. She was so emotional. To she said, who's in the herd in that, in that one phrase of it, you're doing the right thing? Who's going to name after this one? And who's going to bury that one? And who's going to carry on? And who's going to... And I stayed there. And I stayed in Yeshiva in Bar Hashem. I was introduced to my wife. And we continued to get involved with Jewish education. We started having a family. It wasn't until many years later that Aunt Fanny's daughter, my Aunt Rhoda, said to my mother, Oh, Label's family is just like, I didn't realize, it's just like my, 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 my other great-grandfather's family. There were five boys and five girls. Five boys and five girls. They live in Ainsbury, Massachusetts, and you can't find a Jew from amongst them. Hardly. Each one had one and two, and they dead-ended, and they, and they got lost in America, and this one became a chess champion, and this one uh, wrote for the New York Times and didn't have any children, and this one became now, is, 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 is an off-Broadway, famous off-Broadway actor, never got married, and his sister never got married, and, 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 and that's it. There's nobody. Not from Infanny's family either. And here we have kids that are, that, are, that are learning the squiggly lines. I don't blame them. They didn't have a Jewish education. There was nothing around at that time. In the, in the American culture, the American sidewalk swallowed them up. They melted into the sidewalk. Without Jewish education, we're going nowhere. Getting together like this is also very important. To be a part, a part of a yeshiva, a part of a, of a community, part of, of, of a friendship. 
of, of having chavrusas, of seeing other people and, and, and being encouraged to accomplish and keep on going, not to, not, not to be alone, not to be isolated. But they were isolated and, 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 and they lost it. They felt Jewish, but it wasn't enough to keep them going. Not without Torah learning. Now I'm going to just share with you one last thing. We'll finish up with this. And I'll show you some of the rest of the pictures. When it came to, we were making the bris for my younger son. So I had made a bris a few times before. So I knew what I, I knew what I was doing. I knew how to make a lineup card. That's what I knew what I'm doing. So I, there's the, there's the kvater, there's the moil. There's a few key players. And so there's a friend of mine who's announcing each one that comes out. So something, something became clear to me. Because when they bring in the baby, kvater, they bring in the baby. And, they put them on, and they're ready to put him on a chair. And there's another keyboard that's called kise shelaliyahu. They either put him on the chair or take him off the chair. And my friend comes over to me who's making announcements and fry him. He says, he says, you didn't write anything in that, in that spot. I said, oh, I didn't write anything? So I have to spontaneously come up with a keyboard. I have to look around to see who, who, who should I give it to now? And in that moment, an idea crystallized in my mind. Something that I saw at Reb Dessler, Reb Eliyahu Eliezer Dessler, writes in Mikhtav Meliyahu. It's translated into English also. And he says that in the end of times, the last words of the last prophet, Malachi. He says that Eliyahu Novi is going to come and he's going to introduce Mashiach. And, 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 and we with our Western intellectual imaginations think that it's going to be some, some kind of a press conference. There's going to be, you know, microphones and a podium. And it said, you know, like, and Eliyahu is going to say, uh, Mashiach, can you come up, please, and just, you know, address the Olam. Oh, let's, you know. Let's give, let's, let's give a, a, a nice applause for Mashiach. And that's how, no, no, no. He says, Eliyahu Anavi doesn't, doesn't make that type of announcement. And he proves from Gemaras and Midrashim that there's going to be a lot of uh, upheaval in the world. Some of it is the physical world, and some of it is the social world, and some of it is the political world, is the upheavals. He says, it's going to shake people on the inside, and people are going to begin to think thoughts. It's going to be two from, two from a city and one from a family are going to be thinking, you know, uh, I have to do truth. I have to do something. I have to. We have to. We have to do something to keep this alive. Zichru Toros Moshe, he says. He says, and we're going to think. He says that it's our own thoughts. Rabbi Dessa writes. He says, but it's really it's the, it's the call Eliyahu. It's the voice of Eliyahu that's coming in different guises, and he's speaking to us from the inside. And he's speaking to us from the outside. And at that moment over there, when we we're trying to figure out who to give the kibba to, striding in all the way from Lakewood on that frigid winter in January comes walking in from all the way from Lakewood. He didn't walk in from Lakewood. He comes into the room after having driven from Lakewood an hour and a half or more. Comes my cousin Eliyahu. I said, that's my Eliyahu. That's Eliyahu. He says, give, give the man a talus. And he did that. And I realized that, that each and every one of us, we're here. We're here because our parents or because we heard certain th- messages that were given to us by people. This is not a kosher restaurant. This is not where I belong. Make a difference in somebody else's life. You're doing the right thing. Somebody was saying something to us that we heard and we were responsive to it in a way like Avram Avinu was told, Lech Lecha. The Zohar says Avram Avinu was told, Lech Lecha. And it wasn't said just to Avram Avinu. The Svasema says he was said to the whole world and it's still being said to the whole world. But Avraham, Ashrei Avraham, Shashama Vekibal that he heard and he was responsive. So when it's Eliyahu Navi is whispering to us. He's talking to us. He's encouraging us. He's giving us a push. 
And if we hear this voice and we understand it and, and it's clear to us and we're responsive to it, then that's how Eliyahu is preparing the world for Mashiach to come. So I'm just going to show you a couple of pictures over here. So that's why I say, it's not just my story. I'm telling you how different voices and different people, and I'm saying, you know, weird voices. I'm talking about things that happen. You're a son of Abraham. You know, the world is talking to us. People are talking to us. We have to hear, hear the messages that are being said. Again, I'll just show you a couple of pictures. Here I was in, in uh, my a passport photo when our baseball team went to Venezuela to play baseball in Venezuela. Here I was in high school as a football player. I was like 90% of my body weight was neck. You know, look at that. Look what happened over there. That, that's, that, was a, that was a tough guy. Here I was pitching in a high school uh, cult league world series. This picture of Eschatai Ani Maskeriyom was taken on Shabbos. It was I don't I remember because it was a, it was a it was I pitched a one hitter on one day's rest after pitching one day's rest after pitching a two hitter, and we went to the Colt League World Series where I struck out 15 legal Mexicans. Okay, and here I am pitching in college, right? Number 18. I always had these numbers in mind. Something to do with some Jewish association. And we showed this before. Here I am. After college, I think I had a little pipe in my hand or something like that, trying to look, you know, too cool. And finally arrived in yeshiva. And I don't know if you could see, if you take a closer look, there's, I'm holding in my hand a book, and it's, uh, I think, 101, 201 Hebrew verbs. Okay? It's a, you know, very interesting, very interesting. You want to read that book, 201 Hebrew verbs. It's a quick read, but it's, uh, you know, let's get the plot. I don't get the plot, though. That's the only thing, yeah. 201 Hebrew verbs. Wow. You understand why it's not easy getting started. And here I am. This is uh, now it's almost exactly 37 years ago. My wife and I have a 37 year anniversary coming up. And uh, I don't think I fit in that tan suit. I don't wear tan suits anymore. My kids said, why not? You know, my wife even said, why not? I don't know why. It just doesn't seem to be right. It doesn't go with a gray beard. Okay. There I am. That's Shever Brach uh, uh, 37, uh, 37 years ago. And I don't have to show you this. If you eat too much chont and don't, you know, that's what can happen. Here we have a bunch of kids now sitting in the backyard. Someone was nice enough to come and, and take pictures. Then we started making some weddings. It's the first little wedding that we made over here, Baruch Hashem. And a uh, beautiful, wonderful daughter-in-law. This is, I don't care if you get how many years ago now, because I have a 12-year-old uh, a daughter, my, uh, uh, the first little bas mitzvah girl. Here's all of the boys and all the girls, the five and the five over here, a rare photo that we have everybody in the room. Here's a black and white photo of the same picture. And uh, then the wedding cake uh, start, started to grow. Right Here's from a, a bar mitzvah, and the wedding cake started to grow. And some of those same people who were chiding me and digging at me all the time, saying you could have been a senator, now shouldered up when they saw that they were getting treated to such honor and such respect from the children and the great, from their grandchildren and their great grandchildren, they started to feel the love that they were. They were just they, 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 they never felt those feelings. Nobody ever related to them, and none of their friends had these experiences. They said, you know something, you really did something with your life. Yeah, that, that was the confirmation that I wasn't waiting for it. I was going to live without it, but when it came, it was certainly welcome. You really did something because they started to see that this uh, that this wedding and here's something maybe a little bit more uh, recent I'm going to share with you one other brief episode we'll just go back for a second that that first Shabbos that I spent in um, in Crown Heights that when the lady of the house was cleaning up after uh, Shabbos I was sitting doing writing and taking some notes for myself it was after Shabbos she was playing in the background a song that really stirred me 
I stopped writing and I started listening. It was from Moshe Yes. I'm sure some people will remember the song, the Magama Duo Band. It's an old, old song. Zadie made us laugh. Zadie made a kiddish Friday night. And I'm sort of listening and I'm reminding myself of my own great-grandfather that I knew. And it says in, you know, uh, I went to summer camp and Zadie died. And I remember I was, I was in summer camp. My grandfather was, you know, 86 and I was 15 that summer. And they packed up his books. And somehow we stopped being Jewish, and that's what happened to the family. And this whole, they become very mournful, the song, at some point. And now he's singing to himself, and who will be the Zadie of our children? And who will be their Zadie if not we? And my faucets opened up, my eyes opened up, and I don't even know why, but I was crying my eyes out. I was crying my eyes out. I said, who will be the Zadie of our children? Who will be the Zadie if not we? And so that's one of the things that propelled me to continue to find my way to Yeshiva, Bar Hashem, met my cousin Eliyahu. He helped me get to the place where I needed to be, where I found amazing Rebbeim. And uh, Bar Hashem, my mother even became Shama Shabbos. And here's a picture of her with 17 great-grandchildren around her. It was a few, a few weddings ago. And uh, few, shortly after that, she fell, and her plane landed quickly, and she's not here. But this was her pride. She was Bubby. And we were Bubby. And, and, and then my wife and I now, we're Bubby and Zadie. We're the Bubby and Zadie. And so here we are at the most recent wedding that we made, and we're surrounded by, you know, grandchildren, Baruch Hashem. And a friend of mine called me up recently, and he said, uh, I'd like to honor you to maybe make a bracha at the wedding. My son is getting married. Can I honor you for to come on time and, and to be mechabed with a bracha? I said, sure, please. And he calls me back later on. He says, what's your title? So I told him, you know, my work title, whatever it is. And uh, then I texted him back a few minutes later. I said, that's, you know, that, that's on the resume. That's my work title. I said, if you want to know my real honored title, my most honored title, that title is Zadie. Yeah, that's it. You know, that's what it's all about. We're, 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 if we can build such a thing like that, I'm going to give a bracha to all the young ladies over here. Bez Hashem. That you should be zayche to build a wonderful Jewish family. The right time, Bez Hashem. Find a chassan, find someone who has a vision, a Torah vision, a Torah vision, not a television, a Torah vision. Has something in their mind. You know, you can build, you can put, you can you can merge together your your mind and create something that's good for the Jewish people, make a difference in the in, in the life of the Jewish people. And just by seeing everybody's face over here, knowing that you came out to learn on a on what what is tonight, a Wednesday night. You know, I'm sure there's lots of things to do. People could be sitting and busy with their phones all night long and, do it, and keep themselves busy doing nothing. But you came out to a shear. I'm just going to say, keep it up. You're doing the right thing. Thank you very much for the time together, everybody. Yeah. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Enjoyed this story? Come again. Bring a friend. Stories to Inspire.org.